Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief. I'm Adam Rogers. Today I'm going to be reading for you from uh, Deficits of Trust, the Rogers Brief report into the events of April 18th and 19th, 2020 in Nova Scotia and the Commission of Inquiry which followed. This is the introduction section. This project is intended to be a report of what went wrong with both the response and later the investigation of the terrible events of April 18th, 19th, 2020 in Portapik and other areas of central Nova Scotia. There were 22 people plus an unborn child killed over the course of 13 hours, over half of whom could still be alive had there been a series of better decisions made by police. The Mass Casualty Commission that investigated the police shortcomings developed and used an experimental process which ended up fostering confusion and frustration. The MCC had at least as many problems as the police emergency response they were examining and has become a warning sign of how a public inquiry can go astray. There was much to be examined, with thousands of pages of disclosure and 75 days of inquiry proceedings. This Rogers Brief report is an attempt to distill that into its essential elements. That requires first a look back at some parts of the life of the killer, Gabriel Wartman, some of his interactions with police, and things he did over the years that should have attracted police attention, including how he amassed such a fortune in cash, property, and personal possessions. Then, I go through the events themselves, constructing the most plausible narrative of what happened based on all that we now know identifying key turning points and where better decisions could have been made that would have saved lives. There were several very clear such points and others that were perhaps more subtle. After reviewing the events, I will outline the after-event scrambling by the RCMP to explain what they did while also trying to hide what they really did. I will review the way Wartman's spouse, Lisa Banfield, has been treated and perceived and how the RCMP's early manipulation of her has robbed us all of a valuable opportunity to learn more about what happened. The scale of the killing spree may have in itself been sufficient to justify an inquiry, but if not, the unwillingness on the part of the RCMP during those early press conferences to be upfront with the families and the public as to what they knew sparked a movement to call for one. The RCMP opposed an inquiry from the start and were actively hostile to the idea. They resisted disclosure at every turn, from the seconds after Wartman was killed to the last days of the Mass Casualty Commission proceedings. This reticence to provide information to the public has been the main reason for the proliferation of theories as to what may really have taken place at various points in the shooting rampage, and to theories about Wartman's possible connection to the police. Those espousing these theories have been called conspiracy-minded, but, with some exceptions certainly, the reason these ideas have persisted has been the refusal of the RCMP, and later the MCC itself, to be forthcoming with information or to allow officers and witnesses to be questioned. The most prominent of the conspiracy theories was, or perhaps is, that Wartman was a confidential informant for the RCMP. This idea emerged very early in the hours and days after RCMP officers shot Wartman at dead at the big stop in Enfield. Curiously, rather than seeking help from local municipal police forces, the RCMP had called in other RCMP members from Fredericton, Yarmouth, and Antigonish, 
seemingly trying to keep their mess in-house. Wartman had known criminal connections, had been a cross-border smuggler most of his adult life, had been able to stay ahead of the RCMP throughout his rampage, and seemed to be targeting the force by way of exposing their vulnerabilities as much as he was targeting any particular individual. Stories emerged from a, of a particular undercover operation targeting biker gangs, which seemed, circumstantially, to be tied to Wartman. Finally, the shooting of Wartman at the big stop had the look of an execution designed to keep Wartman from revealing any secrets. It was by their own obfuscation that the RCMP fostered very reasonable questions, including whether Wartman was a confidential informant or police agent. There seemed to be two possible explanations, both of which called for an in-depth inquiry. Either Wartman was working with the police and it turned out badly, or else, through police incompetence, they missed the many signs of danger emitting from Wartman and then got outmaneuvered by him numerous times over the course of his 13-hour killing spree. Reports and evidence eventually would provide at least somewhat compelling, though still incomplete, reasons why it was unlikely that Wartman was connected to the police. These came in the form of bank records, mostly, along with the absence of any hard proof of linkages. The most compelling argument against there being a police conspiracy to keep Wartman's connection secret, however, came from listening to the senior RCMP officers from the Nova Scotia and National Command structures testify. They revealed a House of Cards level of political infighting, backstabbing, and posturing at the upper levels of our national police force that would make it seemingly impossible to keep any big secrets. The instinct to criticize and undermine fellow senior officers, seemingly in bids to boost one's own stock, was pervasively demonstrated throughout the testimony of the various white shirts who appeared at, who appeared at the MCC. This all seems inconsist inconsistent with an organization that could keep a big secret like a mass killer being a police agent. Someone would have leaped at the opportunity to pin the responsibility for such a situation on a more senior officer as a way to make themselves look virtuous by comparison. At the same time, and with few exceptions, these senior officers also demonstrated and generated a culture of institutional secrecy in the RCMP that persisted throughout the events of the mass casualty and the inquiry. The first thing the police did after the shootings was assemble a strategic communications team, which promptly drafted misleading and false information for their initial press conferences. Then, they tried to enlist other police forces in their efforts to undermine the utility of the alert-ready emergency alerting system. They tried to get the Truro Police to hold back from disclosing a 2011 criminal intelligence bulletin related to Wartman. They opposed the calling of an inquiry, and when one was announced, took a slow and reluctant approach to disclosure, then appointed the spouses of senior officers to work on it. In addition to upset citizens, Expert views on policing are also calling for change. Our police training and reputational legitimacy falls well short of other jurisdictions, such as Finland, where police officers undergo three years of training, rather than six months at RCMP depot in Regina. Research discussing, discussed during the MCC has shown that there is very little civilian police oversight in Nova Scotia and no accessible complaints process for individuals, particularly if they are from marginalized communities or circumstances. 
A mistrust of the police has been building since April 2020, and we have heard from experts through the MCC how difficult, if not impossible, such trust is to regain once it is lost. It is not only citizens who have lost trust in the RCMP, they have also been removed as a full member of the Nova Scotia Chiefs of Police Association by their municipal police counterparts, and from what we have heard, have not tried particularly hard to be reinstated. It also became clear that the RCMP does not trust the people it is tasked with policing. This was demonstrated during the killing spree when the RCMP refused to issue any warnings to the public on the erroneous thinking that members of the public would start flooding 911 with calls or would start shooting at legitimate police officers. In reality, citizens reacted appropriately throughout the shootings when they had information for the police and experts called by the MCC repeatedly said that the public can and should be trusted with ongoing critical information during a crisis. Questions were asked during the MCC about the RCMP practice, as compared to local forces, of moving members around to new detachments every few years and whether that is appropriate. The RCMP answer amounts to saying that officers should not be too close to the people they police because people cannot be trusted to police their friends. With its origins as a colonial force, the RCMP was perhaps conditioned to see those they policed as others. Rotating around rather than remaining in communities means there will always be a degree of distance between the officer and the people, certainly more so than a local force. The transient nature of it ensures that psychological distance will always be a feature. Such a distance may, in part, explain the lack of trust the RCMP had in the people of Nova Scotia. The RCMP did not trust Nova Scotians to react properly to urgent, safety-related information during the crisis, and then did not trust us with information afterwards. We learned that senior RCMP officers knowingly gave us false information, withheld important details, and then stopped providing it entirely. It all demonstrates a lack of trust. Contrast that approach to communications with another potential one, one more or less deployed by Texas officials after the school shootings in Uvalde, and one which may have occurred to people after watching some of the lower-ranking RCMP officers testify at the MCC. Rather than having senior officers who were not directly involved in any real action giving answers, imagine if members such as the first officer into Portapic the head of the emergency response team, a staff sergeant who was in a car chasing the killer, and a local constable who had dealt with Wartman not long before the killings had been put in front of microphones to tell us what had happened and what they knew. Such a forthright approach may have precluded the calls for, or the need for, a public inquiry. As it stood, there were public calls for an inquiry in the days following the disastrous press conferences the RCMP held in the aftermath of events the RCMP has continued to face criticism since that time. Eventually, the Mass Casualty Commission called to examine the events would face its own criticisms. It was with a significant degree of irony that much of this criticism related to the MCC being secretive, having a closed-off communication strategy and an overly opaque and bureaucratic structure. In such ways, the MCC took on the flawed characteristics of the RCMP it was tasked with investigating. There were many flaws in the development of the MCC and then the way the inquiry unfolded. 
Primarily, however, the criticism was generated from the MCC's seeming unwillingness to address the core questions around the performance and culture of the RCMP and how those things affected the police's dealings with the killer. Rather than addressing policing, the MCC seemed to have determined, in advance and without hearing the evidence, that the most important issue they were to confront was domestic violence, as though that were the most important causal element of the killings and an area where the most meaningful change can occur. Neither of those are obvious to those who have watched the proceedings unfold. It is difficult to generate significant change to ingrained systems within society, and our policing structures and cultures are very deeply ingrained. There is a natural inertia holding such things in place, which requires a tremendous injection of public opinion force to dislodge. Time delays, we are now two and a half years past the events, tend to quell outrage. The police fight back at every turn, and often our governments want to be seen as pro-police and do not want to try anything too complicated or potentially expensive, not to mention outside their election platforms, unless there is a very obvious political benefit in doing so. So, often, things do not change, even though it seems clear that they should. Responsibility for policing is within provincial government jurisdiction in Canada, but in Nova Scotia there is a patchwork of different municipal police forces, along with the RCMP, which has contracts with most rural areas to provide policing services. Though the Police Act of Nova Scotia contemplates a provincial police force and has the provincial Minister of Justice in charge of policing, it was clear from the Department of Justice officials who spoke at the MCC that the province does not want to be responsible for establishing or running a police force. Another issue with the MCC has been that it was seemingly, actively and deliberately trying to limit the size of its audience and thus its impact through a disorienting approach to presenting both the evidence and its collection of expert opinions. Rather than having witnesses tell us what happened, we had dull, seminar-like presentations from MCC lawyers. Then, rather than having experts discuss what had taken place, as would happen in any criminal or civil trial, the MCC had a rule that no expert could even mention the critical events to which their expertise was supposed to relate. It appeared from the beginning that the MCC had their final report narrative already drafted and that each of the few as possible witnesses and selected experts were there as something of a performative exercise in furtherance of that preset narrative. None of the three commissioners were sitting judges, used to the fluid dynamics of a trial, and the family participants were marginalized throughout the proceedings so as not to disrupt the narrative flow that the MCC had established. This was most prominently displayed in the MCC's refusal to allow any kind of normal cross-examination of witnesses or experts. Questions from participants, when they were allowed to ask any, were pre-screened by MCC lawyers and limited in scope. The commissioners attempted to justify this exclusion by emphasizing the public interest duties of the MCC lawyers, though this theoretical stance was too often betrayed in practice during proceedings. Beginning with their recommendation to the commissioners during the first week that no witnesses at all need to be called to supplement or dispute 
the information in the pre-scripted foundational documents. In fact, later on in the proceedings, when we heard from Chief Superintendent Chris Leather, who was the second-ranking RCMP officer in Nova Scotia at the time of the events of April 18th, 19th, 2020 mass shooting, I noticed that in her introduction to the day, Commissioner Leanne Fitch would not even say the words cross-examination, even though that is what she was describing, but rather stated that MCC lawyer Rachel Young would facilitate questions from participants' counsel. Nothing really turned on that characterization, but it was another subtle example of participants' lawyers, and thus the families, being marginalized by the MCC. All Miss Young was actually called upon to do that day was state the order in which the other lawyers would be speaking, and rough time estimates for them to do so. All of the commissioners' daily introductions were read by them off pieces of paper, no doubt carefully crafted by the plethora of communications staff employed by the MCC, so it is unlikely that the choice of words was inadvertent. Not incidentally, it was during the cross-examination of Chief Superintendent Leather that we learned about his unease at being told by his own lawyers at the Federal Department of Justice to not proactively disclose documents to the MCC. This was an extraordinary and all-too-rare scene, and provided an example both of the federal government's minimalist approach to disclosure and the benefits of allowing cross-examination of witnesses. Michael Scott from Patterson Law was the first lawyer to cross-examine Chief Superintendent Leather. He started by picking up on a comment that Chief Superintendent Leather had made during direct questioning that he did not want to answer a question without speaking to legal counsel. I was watching the questioning the day before when Chief Superintendent Leather stated something to that effect and thought that Miss Young, as an MCC lawyer acting in the public interest, should have followed up on that statement. She did not. The next day, Chief Superintendent Leather was prepared to speak further and it was a significant exchange. What Chief Superintendent Leather was trying to discuss was a recorded wellness interview he gave with a private company brought in by the RCMP to talk to senior officers in which he discussed the now infamous in the MCC context conference call where RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky expressed her disappointment with the RCMP, Nova Scotia RCMP's failure to publicly reveal the makes and models of the guns Wartman used. The very fact of the interview, let alone its contents, had not been disclosed to the MCC and Chief, Chief Superintendent Leather testified that he had questions for the DOJ lawyers about what he should say, if anything, about that interview when he was getting ready to be questioned by the MCC in advance of his testimony. He started his answer by saying that he waived solicitor-client privilege. This means that he wished to discuss advice he had sought or received from legal counsel. It is up to the client, not the lawyer, to waive privilege. Chief Superintendent Leather said that he was told by federal DOJ lawyers Lori Ward and Patricia McPhee not to proactively disclose the fact that he had given that interview, but only mention it if he was asked about it. It was highly unlikely that he would be asked about it, as the MCC had no notice that such an interview had even been set up, so it amounts to the DOJ telling Chief Superintendent Leather to withhold the information. This important moment only happened because of cross-examination. Not being allowed to effectively question witnesses was just one way families were marginalized. Amazingly, 
none of the family members were called as witnesses during the proceedings, aside from Richard Ellison, who was called for other reasons. In the Desmond inquiry, many family members testified and were able to provide important emotional weight to the proceedings. Testifying also allowed those family members to process their own trauma by speaking about their loved ones and telling us their experiences of the shootings. It also helps the public, in that sense, process our collective trauma. The attention and gravitas of the main stage of the MCC broadcast mattered and should have been available for the families. The MCC evidently had other priorities. Another effect of not having family members provide testimony is that we may have missed opportunities to learn more about the potential motives of the killer. Family members may have known about interactions their loved ones had with Wartman over the years or in the days and weeks leading up to the shootings that may have given us insight into why or whether certain individuals were targeted. The MCC also displayed a lack of sensitivity in the location of the inquiry. The proceedings were held mainly in the cavernous Nova Center and other hotel locations in Halifax, rather than in Truro, which would have been much more accessible for the families and community members affected. These were just some of the ways the MCC misread and misapplied its trauma-informed mandate during the course of proceedings. Another, perhaps more inflammatory, application of that mandate saw experienced police commanders, most of whom had no direct experiences of trauma or violence during the shootings, being protected from the kinds of questioning they have faced throughout their entire careers. These decisions from the commissioners led to boycotts and resulted in untested and thus subpar evidence. The MCC proceedings are now over, and the commissioner's report, which was due to be delivered on November 1st, 2022 has been delayed without compelling reasons for five months. I followed the MCC throughout doing daily summaries and analysis for the general public. I also committed to preparing this alternative report which I think and hope will contribute just as much to the formation of public opinion as the official version. The unfortunate legacy of the MCC will be that other governments will be more reluctant than ever to call inquiries. When they do, they will certainly be more careful about the language they chose in their orders and council that give the commissioners their mandate. Despite the many issues with the MCC, and in a sense this was one of them, there was a mountain of information made available from which the public might draw their own conclusions. From all of that, from all of the information that emerged in the MCC, and with additional details and circumstantial evidence from other sources, I have attempted to construct what really took place over the 13 hours of the killing spree. I will start with the killer, his background, and what was known to police. Then, I will detail what happened and where the police made mistakes of consequence. Finally, I will review the MCC process as it unfolded, in the hopes that future public inquiries can learn from the costly errors that have been undermining the credibility of this inquiry since the beginning. All right, folks, that's the introduction to deficits of trust. Hope uh, you enjoyed that. If, uh, if people like and there's uh, good feedback and response, then I will uh, continue uh, with uh, further chapters and uh, get through the entire report as 
something of an audiobook. And uh, so, uh, look forward to your feedback. Uh, thanks for everybody for watching and listening today, and we'll see you next time.